Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. Hey, it's GQ here. Thanks for joining us in the How We Solve podcast. Today I have with me Sharam Anver, co-founder and CTO of DataQ, a software solution that creates personalized experiences for your customers across your website and email. Welcome, Sharam. Happy to have you on the show. Hey, JQ. I'm really glad to be here. All right. So before we get into the problem, let's talk about your company. If you could tell us more about DataQ. So what we do is we improve conversion by up to 30% by showing every visitor a different version of your website based on the content they're most interested in. So you can think about it like uh, when you go to a store and you tell somebody, hey, I want some jeans and they take you right to that section. Websites don't really work like that. Your website is the same to everybody who comes. So we try to make it like that in-store experience where the website just adapts to what the visitor wants. All right. Very cool. And what are some examples of stores that you've worked with that you think that will benefit a lot from DataQ? If you think about what I just said, I think the best example online, uh, which everybody knows would be, say, YouTube and Netflix. And there's a reason for that, right? Because number one, these two have an incredible number of visitors coming to the site, which automatically means that each of these visitors have very different opinions on what they like. And then they have a lot of product, in this case, video. So if you're an e-commerce site and you have literally five products, you don't need to personalize. You can just put all five on your homepage and you're done. But once you're hitting 100, 200, 1,000, that automatically means that you're attracting very different types of people coming to your site. So a nice example would be, think about a baby store. You could have expectant mothers coming. You could have people looking for a gift for a baby shower. You could have people with toddlers. They all want very different products from the same store. So if you have a store that matches something like this, where you've got something like five different customer segments who want different things, and you've got at least 100 products, and you're making reasonable revenue, which suggests that you've solved all your basics, that's a good time to invest. This sounds really amazing. I remember we caught up at a Shopify Pursuit uh, meetup a a few weeks ago. Uh, you were talking about a problem when you were at the inception stage of your business, right? So uh, could you share with our listeners, what problem are we solving today? Maybe just to give you a little bit of background, I have a data science background from TripAdvisor. And I was very clear that I wanted to start my own business. I could see just out there that like the largest companies uh, online were pretty much dominating using machine learning, AI, and things like that. And I found that these words were really just buzzwords for everybody else. So I was very clear that I wanted to build something which would make it easier for everybody else to enjoy the benefits of machine learning. But then the problem is, okay, so, so now what? That's still very vague, right? So I think the problem for me at the inception was, okay, exactly what are we going to build? It's all very nice thing. I want to help people and I want to make things more democratized. But I, and especially as an engineer, I think any engineers listening to this would definitely agree. There's nothing you like more than just jumping into code and building something. So I, I'd say that really was the challenge. Like, don't jump into code you know what you want to do, but like, how do I define this into something which I know that people actually value and actually want to pay money for? Essentially, like, what can I build a business around? I think a lot of 
uh, a lot of the times, especially when it, not even just engineers, maybe even you know uh, entrepreneurs themselves, they they would choose to dive into the product because people have a preconception that hey. I know what's best, and I know what people need. I think the only exceptions to that is uh, if you build a product to solve your own problems from the beginning, that they kind of hold some merit. I've heard that a lot before, where you know you should solve your own problem, and I think it's good advice. But you also need to take into account that, like all of these advice, you always have this caveat, right? So even when you're solving your own problem, you do need some kind of metric to know that your problem isn't that niche. Because you might just be a very unique individual who just has this one problem, and maybe a hundred people in the world have that. So unless you can build something where, like, only these hundred people are going to, you know, sustain you, then that's also not going to be perfect, right? That is very, very true. When we were uh, thinking of getting some products started, we just kind of bounced ideas off the bat, and I remember wanting to start like a marketplace of sorts. But then we realized that you know we were kind of going about it the wrong way. And back then, when when we were starting out, just like chatting with other entrepreneurs, and they're saying that, hey, do you even know if that if there are people who would use this product? So so this kind of <laughs> kind of led us to led, led us to where we are today at LTV Plus. But I'm curious, you know, let's say, you know, you, you mentioned about kind of like the backstory behind DataQ. So if today, uh, you know, I was an entrepreneur with some ideas in mind, kind of understanding maybe, you know, there might be some people who would want to use my tool or use this product. What are the steps that you could share with us, you know, to going about solving this? How did you do it for DataQ? First of all, bear in mind that all of the advice I'm about to give you is very specific to B2B. Because if you're talking B2C, it's a completely different ballgame. And frankly, I don't think I'm qualified to give you any advice on B2C. I'm sure there's great material online. But on B2B, one of the best advantages you have is that it's hard to get a meeting with somebody who can give you good feedback. But once you do get the meeting... The feedback is pretty much on point, whereas you know with B two C, I I guess it's it's much harder. So in this sense, you know, just going back to our own story, I knew this is what we wanted to do. So uh, you know, solve work with e commerce and make sure we were helping people with data. So our first idea was to build a more intelligent Google Analytics because my co-founder, she comes from a consulting background, and I also had a consulting background uh, before TripAdvisor. And consulting is basically where you collect a whole bunch of data, you know, you define a problem, then you define a hypothesis thinking, okay, this is probably why this problem is happening. Then you go out there and collect data. And either this data proves the hypothesis or it doesn't. And then you present a conclusion to the stakeholder saying, okay, like this is uh, what you need to do. Like you know, just a, maybe a, one example would be the problem is that you are losing money. And maybe because the sales are going down, but then when you look into it, maybe you find that you have two products and one product that used to be very profitable is no longer selling as much, but then this other product that isn't very profitable, that one is selling more. So then, you know, you would go back to the customer and say, okay, like it looks like the wrong types of products are being sold. So you need to fix that. So that's kind of what I spotted with Google Analytics, where you kind of get all this data but it doesn't really tell you what to do. It'll tell you, okay, like your homepage visits are up, your product page visits are down, but you know you don't really get too much out of it. So we thought, we were really excited and we thought, okay, this is going to be amazing. We can just build something like this. <laughs> and we went out of the market and like we found that at least we did something like 10 interviews. And what we did is we, we built like a very detailed PowerPoint slide because of the consulting background where it looked like 
I mean, we, we were very clear. We said the, the, the solution wasn't built yet, but this is what it could look like. And nobody really cared. And then when we were talking, what I found is that people were saying, okay, but if you could look at the data, instead of telling me, like giving me a report, why don't you guys just do something about it immediately on my website? And this was like what some, one of uh, somebody told us in uh, one of the meetings. And we thought, okay, that sounds really interesting. And so then we went back and we thought about it and we thought, okay, so like based on what somebody is doing on a website right now, what kind of actions could we take in real time? So then we thought about this idea of, we we're actually uh, talking to people who were doing um, a fashion site. And so we thought, okay, so if someone's clicking on men's, products, it's pretty clear that they are probably looking to get men's clothes. So we thought, okay, like, can we just change their website to show more men's stuff? So we did a little demo. Uh, we built a quick proof of concept and we tried it. They loved it. And then it was just really this process of iteration where you'd implement it and then people were thinking, okay, that's interesting, but now can you do this? And now can you do that? And I don't think this process ever stopped. And I think when you stop, I think that's when you're in trouble. Because the moment you can get somebody who cares enough about the problem, then they're just going to flood you with feedback. And that's really what you want, mm-hmm, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. I think I've said quite a bit. So does that, does that all make sense? Or did you no, definitely. I, I think like you've laid out really clearly kind of like your thought process of what your company actually went through to get to where you are today. Now, you brought up when you talked about Google Analytics as a form of feedback and of course, you know, getting direct feedback from your customers. Uh, yeah. Are there any other types of tools or frameworks, maybe even third-party services or agencies that you used to help you get closer to where DataQ is today? So just to clarify, we didn't use Google Analytics. That was our first idea of a product that would be an improved version of Google Analytics. What we realized is that you know people were saying, hey, can you actually react to what people are doing? So I think we went sort of the other way where I guess it's also because I'm an engineer. What we, what we thought is we should just build this from like on our own. So we built a JavaScript library just I suppose Google Analytics was a good uh, case study or like a, an example because Google Analytics, you can say a lot of things about it that you don't like, but they've got a lot of things right, uh, which is why pretty much every website uses it. And one of the most amazing things about it is that it's so easy to include on your site. You just copy this piece of code and you paste it and literally like you've got most of the functionality working. So. I'd say we use a lot of that as an inspiration. So we built our own JavaScript library and then we um, got the data collection working and then we built the algorithm ourselves and things like that. So I suppose like in terms of tools that really helped us, it would be a little bit more low level uh, instead of like a commercial product because obviously like for from a developer point of view, there's a lot of great libraries out there that help you do things much faster. It's In this day and age, it's pretty stupid to try to do everything yourself. But yeah, so hopefully that answers the question. So we we weren't really like hobbling together any commercial products. But I I suppose one which I would bring up is something I like a lot. It's this company called Webflow. And this is not really helping us solve the problem that we wanted. But Webflow just helps you do like a, a website that's completely visual. And for me, it was really helpful because when you're busy building a site, like, a, I mean, a, a product, you also need to have a really good marketing site to describe exactly what you're doing, but yeah. you don't want to be spending weeks coding that one too. 
So Webflow kind of was pretty awesome that way because it lets a designer actually build the website themselves. So we hired a designer and she could just do all the changes herself on the site, which really freed up a lot of my time to focus on uh, the product dev. So for any, anyone listening here, like if you sort of have a similar issue, I'd highly recommend these um, sort of visual website builders, unless you're doing something very, very fancy because they do save a lot of time in the long run. So understanding, you know, we, we met in Europe, but if mm. I understood correctly, your company, it's, it's, a, it's a Singapore-based company, right? Yeah. Uh, but you also embrace the concept of remote work and, uh, you know, your staff are not just from Singapore, but they're from all other parts of the world. Do you think, and maybe this is uh, more for entrepreneurs who are very focused inwards, but do you think that businesses or startups would benefit from not just looking inwards, but looking outwards, maybe even venturing out of where they're based. So for example, maybe I'm based in Singapore and maybe setting up a business based out of Vietnam or, or Ukraine should be something that entrepreneurs consider versus just starting it from where they are right now. So, I mean, I think at a lot of these times, you really want to go by the mantra of, you know, own your domestic market first and make a niche for yourself and then look into going outside. But then that said, if you are in a business where, I mean, the cool thing with digital is that the whole definition of a market is now changing very quickly. And this is something which we've thought about a lot as well. Like we can't really define ourselves as being, yeah, like we only serve the Singaporean market because it doesn't make sense. We, we put a product out there. It's on the Shopify app store. It's on, you know, multiple e-commerce platforms. There's really nothing, there's no difference between serving a Singaporean customer and I don't know, uh, a Chilean customer or a Ukrainian customer, it's pretty much the same effort because it's all email support and chat and uh, they just install it with, in the exact same way. So we started defining our market in terms of like platforms. So we realized that, okay, right now it makes much more sense for us to focus on Shopify and given language, we buy a, buy, a, buy a different quirk. Like one of our team members is a fluent Spanish speaker. So we thought, okay, we can do English and Spanish. So then that's how we defined our market. So then if you have this luxury of not being geography bound, then absolutely, I, I think you should look outward because that's just your default. And then you should see, okay, like in terms of Shopify, it's in so many countries that it's kind of stupid to say you only focus on you know, country A or country B. That's very, very interesting. And, and I think one thing that came up to, to kind of dive deeper into this would be the mm -hmm. consideration of whether or not you want to hire remotely versus hiring uh, locally. Do you uh, think that has helped you tremendously in terms of the growth of your business and kind of like tapping into, you know, uh, talents and, and uh, skill sets that might not be readily available, you know, with, uh, locally? You know, well, what are your thoughts on remote hiring? Maybe this is a topic which people have very different opinions on. I, I suppose it is. I mean, I am 100% pro-remote. Though I would say that if you are going remote, again, like this is a very subjective opinion. I think if you're going to go remote, you might as well go 100% remote. I just can't see a mixed model kind of working where you have an office and a few people are in the office and then the others are working from home. It kind of works, but then it's almost like there's no equality, so to speak, where, you know, like people who are in the physical meeting room sort of get more access or more information than the people who have to dial in every single day from their home. Whereas like the way we run DataQ, it's like everybody's on remote all the time. So it really doesn't matter to us where you live because 
uh, as long as you've got some decent uh, time overlap for us to do our team call. And then, you know, with the one-on-one, especially when you're working from home, I think you don't really have to go to the nine to five kind of thing. Then, you know, it, it, it absolutely works. And the good things about it is that like talent is everywhere. And especially with the kind of work we're doing, which is, you know, product development or marketing or things like that, it's very little local specific knowledge that's really, really there. Like if there is, then yes, you can hire from that uh, market. So for instance, you know, uh, like I said, we have a pretty international story. So some of the funding uh, we got was from Chile. And so we started actually in Chile. So we hired somebody from Chile, which would help us because you, you do need these sort of local connections to make progress there. But, you know, in other countries, perhaps Europe, uh, that's not really maybe that important. We are also 100% behind this uh, at LTV Plus as well. So I definitely get, uh, get where you're coming from. Now, with regards to what we've discussed today, what are some of the books or tools or you know, resources that you would recommend listeners to check out if they're faced with a similar situation as you from before when you started DataQ? What, what kind of resources would you recommend? I am a big fan of the YC series. So Y Combinator does some really great uh, material. So I think they upload pretty much every lecture they have on uh, YouTube. They have a program called Startup School where all the lectures of that are also um, uploaded. And and you really get a good sense of the fact that you just need to be laser focused on solving a real problem. And I, and I think that was extremely helpful. The other one which I would highly recommend is that, I don't know, depending on what stage you are, but I think way too many people get this paralysis analysis kind of problem where you want to do it, but then you can think of a thousand different reasons why you shouldn't do it and why it's not the right time. So it's not really a tool, but I'd say like start, do something. Because the moment you've already started working on something, it becomes that much easier for you to talk about it with people and then start getting feedback. Because otherwise, every time you ask for feedback, like, hey, I have this idea, I'm thinking of doing this, what do you think? You just get terrible feedback back because no one's going to be able to give you anything concrete or anything useful. Whereas if you say, hey, I built this app that does this, this, and this, uh, what do you think? Someone could go, oh, I actually know someone who did something similar, maybe you should talk to them. And then when you do have that conversation with that person, they can be very specific, like, okay, so what exactly did you do? What's your experience so far? And you can have a much more substantial conversation versus if you're just always just thinking, okay, I need to first make sure of X, Y, Z before I dip my toes in the water, you know, you just won't get anywhere. I like that a lot. Yeah, you just have to dive right in to get this done and figure it out. Like you will be faced with so many other types of challenges and other kinds of uh, questions once you've actually dipped your feet in the water and then you kind of understand that it's actually very different from the outside. Yeah, I, I mean, we're a good example, right? Like I just told you about how I had this, you know, great ambition of building the next amazing Google Analytics and if yep. you heard my elevator pitch, we're doing something completely different just because we got some feedback and talked about it. And I don't think we're anywhere, like I, I wouldn't even say that we are there yet. Like I think there's so much more that we have to learn. There's so much more we have to do to get even better. And there's no way you're going to start that uh, process if you haven't started. It's, I mean, it, it sounds like such a tourism. It's so obvious, but like it's amazing how, because um, it's scary like to, to get started because when it's a concept, 
you can always say, oh yeah, it's a concept. Um, so it should work. This is a potential. It's amazing. But when you start doing it for real, it's suddenly real. Like you, you know, if you spent a whole like three months working on it and you don't have any customers, that's pretty sobering. And I think that's, that's very scary, but I mean, I guess it's just about getting some thick skin and thinking, okay, like I'm just going to keep learning and I'm going to, I'm going to get there. That is absolutely true. Always be learning, right? <laughs> yeah. One hour per day and figuring out the practical situations. <laughs> well, well uh, you know, it's definitely not easy for you uh, as an entrepreneur to, you know, go through the different kinds of hardships that you face day to day. Do you have a personal mission statement that you follow that gets you through every day? I think I'm generally somebody who's very positive. So that I think helps a lot. We've got a sort of a strange, I guess I'd say a little bit more unique situation because my co-founder happens to be my wife and is quite different in the way she thinks. So I think that has been a huge strength uh, for me because when you are going into entrepreneurship, the kind of hardships that you have to deal with are like, it's a lot, like it's stuff which you don't actually think about too much when you're, when you're just thinking about an idea. So I think uh, more than anything, it's like having somebody like a co-founder who you feel like can really prop you up when things are down and then you should be able to do the same for them. I think there's a reason why when you have like, like being a single co-founder is obviously possible, but it's just that much harder. Isn't there some um, Chinese proverb? I'm pretty sure I'm getting this wrong, but something like if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with someone else. That is very interesting because I think that will be really useful for founders who might be uh, having a relationship or perhaps they're married as well. Because I think it really depends on how the relationships are set up. But it's really good if you're able to find that balance and be able to work together because, you know, day in, day out, you know, you'll be able to discuss this, you'll be able to figure this out. Yeah. I mean, we were thinking of sharing more of um, sort of our experiences on our podcast. And the, the first guest, which we are going to have is actually like, I'm going to be hosting it and um, I'm going to be talking to Anne, my wife, and we're actually going <laughs> to dive into this topic quite a bit. Like, how did we make it work? Because it's quite scary, honestly. Like we actually heard from quite a few investors that this whole married co-founder thing can be a big red flag. And, and understandably so, because you could have like some issue that happens on the work side of things could actually affect something I would say arguably more important, which is your, your personal uh, relationship. So it's something like if anybody's listening in, like I, I, I wouldn't say jump into it. Like I think it's really an important conversation to have with your partner and have these very clear guidelines before you jump into it. But if you can make it work, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Now, if people wanted to reach out to you to discuss more about what we've talked today, what's the best way that they can reach out? Just shoot me an email. Uh, I'm very open with that. So it's my name. I know it's pretty weird. Uh, it's S-H-A-H-R-A-M at dataq.co. You can also go to our website, dataq.co, and you can find our contact details there. There's also a live chat widget there if you want to um, jump in. But I'd be more than happy to respond to any questions. Well, that about wraps it up for our episode. Thank you so much for your time, Sharam. It was really nice to have you on this podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, GQ. And I'm really glad we managed to do it uh, yeah, with all this uh, craziness going around us. Craziness around the world, but doesn't matter. Technology still lives and we're still able to do what we want to do. Indeed, indeed. All right. So thank you so much for tuning in and subscribing to the How We Solve podcast. 
Is your e-commerce growing so fast that you can't keep up with supporting your customers in real time? Serve them better in any time zone and language. They will thank you with higher conversion rates and repeat purchases. We build and manage your own dedicated customer experience team of live chat and support agents. Get started today. Visit ltvplus.com. That's ltvplus.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.